everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be here with you today. We have a great show. We have a guest who is making his Katie Helper Show debut, and I've been wanting to have him on for so long. I'm talking about Ajamu Baraka, and it is finally happening. So you guys are witnessing a historic moment. Then we'll be joined afterwards by David Sirota, and it's going to be a great chat. We're going to be talking about imperialism and war and neoliberalism and, of course, the debt ceiling deal. We're going to be talking to Ajamu during the first half and then David Sirota. So what else? Okay, just a few announcements before we start the show. Of course, please do like the stream. Just give it a thumbs up. That's a way to fight back against the corporate overlords who try to control our lives. Give it a thumbs up. Subscribe. We're almost at 100,000 subscribers. We have 97,000 subscribers, so we're almost there. We can't wait to get to 100,000 because I think you get some kind of trophy from YouTube. That's all that this is about, just getting that trophy. No, just kidding. We just want to reach more people because we have really important, I think, voices that we have on the show, including the voices that we're having on today. Of course, if you can become a Patreon supporter, please do that at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. That's a way for you to get twice as much content, basically. Today, if you watch this live, you'll see the whole thing. But if you watch this later and you want to see the full interview with David Sirota, you can find that at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. We also have a great full-length interview with Richard Wolf. That's at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Also, you can become YouTube members, and that gives you cool badges and emojis, including Bodhi emojis. Maybe next week, we'll show some of those Bodhi emojis. Also, if you are in the tri-state area, come see me and Brianna Joy Gray at a live show at the Francis Kite Club, which is a really cool new space. It's at 40 Avenue C. It's a free show and it's sold. I don't, I think it may be sold out, but we'll hold a couple tickets. So try to get there at 6 p.m. if you haven't already gotten a ticket. And we'll hold some for people because there will probably be some no shows. You can also get Katie Helper Show merch, and the link to that is in the description. So you can get mugs and shirts and stuff. But we are bringing on our first guest, who is a human rights defender whose experience spans four decades of domestic and international education and activism with roots in the Black Liberation Movement and anti-apartheid and Central American solidarity struggles. He's a national organizer for Blacks for Peace and was the Green Party nominee for Vice President of the United States in 2016. So honored to have joining us Ajamu Baraka. Thank you so much, Katie. It's, it's really a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thank you. One slight correction. Yeah. I was the national organizer for a, a new formation relatively new formation, the Black Alliance for Peace. So Blacks for Peace, that's the uh, Twitter handle. Oh, okay. Right as I was saying that, I was like, that sounds really weird. Okay, Black Alliance for Peace. Right. You know what happened is I did your biography and I took some of it from your website, some from the Green Party website, and but also from Twitter. And when I copied and pasted from Twitter, I think that's the Blacks for Peace part. Anyway. No problem. But thank you for, I'll fix that afterwards. Speaking of Black Alliance for Peace, Wanted to start off asking you what your thoughts are about the latest developments in the war in Ukraine, this proxy war in Ukraine. Well, we are very much concerned about what is what appears to be U.S. policy that does not want to in any way consider the possibility of some kind of negotiated settlement of this conflict. They have hung their coat on the the hook of of militarism and the belief that. The Ukrainian military will have the ability to take back lost territory by force. They have hyped up this so-called uh, offensive that apparently started a couple of days ago, but doesn't appear to be too successful. And therefore, we had this very dangerous development with the sabotage of the dam that just uh, coincidentally impacts or might impact the ability of 
Russians who live in Crimea to have access to fresh water. So it's a very dangerous development. It is really heartbreaking, Katie, to see the continuation of this conflict, the conflict that did not have to happen. You know, I've been very clear in terms of my position on this conflict, one in which we saw the so-called negotiations taking place between the Russian Federation and the U.S. throughout 2021. But it became quite clear to me that the U.S. was pursuing a policy that was going to lead to some kind of conflict, even if the conflict was going to be just limited to the so-called Donbass. And to see this happen and to see the thousands of lives that have been lost unnecessarily is really heartbreaking. And it's appalling that we have so many people who seem to have been ready to cheer this conflict on, who still want to see it to continue, who are not morally appalled by the commentary from the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, who slipped up being the amateur that he is and revealed the real objective of U.S. policy, which basically is to weaken the Russian Federation. So this commitment, this decision to sacrifice the lives of Ukrainians to advance U.S. policy, to me, is, is morally indefensible. And it's incredible that so many people in the U.S. continue to support this. And why do you think that is? I mean, even among the left, among people who are sometimes critical of militarism and imperialism, there's kind of a split. What do you think that is due to? I think it's partly as a consequence of the five years of propaganda, anti-Russian propaganda that many people on the left fed into. Uh, the, the whole Russian gate process was a process that conditioned the population and incidentally the U.S. left to accept the notion that the Russians were in fact some type of existential threat to the U.S. This simplistic framing of Putin as some kind of demon and the notion that the Russians were only committed to some type of reinvention, if you will, of the Soviet Union. I mean, it was just so insulting and, 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 and silly, but people bought into it. And, and so, you know, once the conflict got framed as a sort of moral crusade, if you will, and once some elements of the left started to frame the conflict using left phraseology around issues like the self-determination rights of of Ukraine and all of that, I think it confused a lot of people. And that confusion continues to this day. Then you have, you know, the development of, of various formations like the Ukrainian Solidarity Network made up of many people who are liberals and on the left, who a few decades ago would be opposed to this conflict. They have now embraced it and embrace it as a, a moral uh, conflict and and one in which they are prepared to support U.S. policy to the bitter end, if you will. So it is it's a, a strange phenomenon that I'm still trying to, to uh, unpack. And what do you say to the people who will bring up things like self-determination? What is your response to that argument? That, you know, uh, I believe in self-determination as a principle, but it's uh, also an abstract principle. And so um, the self-determination um, goes both ways. The people of the Donbass have been arguing for self-determination for some time, since 2014. Uh, the Russian Federation did not recognize that call for self-determination. Um, and so, you know, one has to look at these issues um, in a concrete way. It can't just be the abstract principles. So this notion of, of, of the self-determinant rights of Ukrainians has to be weighed uh, concretely. So it is something that has to be dealt with they are serious. These are serious questions, and, and they, they require a serious analysis. But right now, analysis in the U.S. is, is strictly at the surface level, uh, slogans and, and simplistic uh, positions. Um, and in the meantime, uh, the war continues and people are dying. You had a very important insight that you expressed on Twitter. So just to set this up, as people probably know, there's been a federal indictment of members of the African People's Socialist Party and the Uhuru movement. We've had Omalia Shatella on the show. And I want to show a tweet that first Ben Norton tweeted out and that you responded to. So Ben wrote, 
Authoritarian crackdown on free speech in the U.S. Three members of the African People's Socialist Party face 15 years in prison for supposedly helping Russia spread disinfo, read inconvenient facts about NATO's proxy war in Ukraine. McCarthyism plus racism. And your response to that was, as we predicted when the liberal reactionaries started that Russiagate BS that the public was being prepared to accept repression and that first targets would be black movement. Can you elaborate on this, both what happened recently, but also this history of a combination of McCarthyism and racism that targets the black movement? Yeah, very, very troubling uh, development. Um, as we, as I said in that in that tweet, uh, we were very concerned about the ultimate targets of the Russian Gate um, um, BS uh, that um, was providing uh, a, a uh, legitimacy for the acceptance of of big big brotherism, uh, the notion that uh, social media. And these social media companies that just that just so happened to be aligned with the Democratic Party had the responsibility to uh, to filter, to censor uh, 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 speech and information, um, and that this was a dangerous development. That while it was being framed as uh, something that was targeting the so-called right, and when I say the right. Uh, you know, I mean the the far right because the neoliberal Democrats are part of the right, in my uh, estimation. Uh, that that uh, ultimately this was going to be used as a tool against the the historically uh, proven acceptable uh, tool uh, or acceptable target, and that is uh, black the black resistance movement, the black anti uh, imperialist and anti capitalist. A black liberation movement. We saw it at the end of the uh, Second World War or the Second Imperialist War, uh, where peace activists like uh, W.B. Du Bois and Paul Robeson um, uh, found themselves in the crosshairs of U.S. repression. Um, and we 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 saw it. We saw it as the McCarthy two uh, 2.0 uh, developed that uh, many of us were being uh, threatened. And now we see this indictment by the African people of the African People's Socialist Party and the Uhuru movement under the outrageous uh, notion that we need the Russians to uh, to to inspire us to struggle against the ongoing criminal enterprise that we refer to as a U.S. settler state, and that we need the Russians to help us to uh, to to come to an analysis that says that. Uh, the U.S. and Western powers represent an existential threat to collective humanity, and that this conflict in Ukraine, this war in Eastern Europe, uh, was a war that was unnecessary, but a war that was uh, being fueled by uh, very diabolical um, U.S. interests to dis disarticulate the Russian uh, and the German economy uh, to uh, to facilitate. Uh, the ability of the U.S. to impose itself on the European market, uh, you know, we can think for ourselves, you know. And so the notion that the uh, the, the uh, Uhuru movement and the African People's Socialist Party and the Black Liberation Movement, by extension, the radical Black Liberation Movement, need to be uh, in the uh, to be to be to be inspired and and directed by the Russians is just another manifestation of the sickness of the psychopathology of white supremacy, white supremacist ideology. So it is, but what, what people have to understand is this, this is not just an assault on the black liberation movement, but the left in general is meant to intimidate, to, uh, to uh, ensure that the opposition does not continue to develop. Uh, but, you know, we said during the apartheid movement that, you know, when they, you know, when they targeted black women and, in South Africa, that they struck a rock. Well, you, you you come after the Black Liberation Movement as weak as we may be. The same time you struck a rock, is nobody's going to be intimidated. And there's been such silence around this issue. Again, even from people who consider themselves leftists. I don't know if people are scared. I don't know if people actually buy this propaganda. I mean, even the Justice Department 
admitted that this was an issue of free speech, but the way that they handled that is they said it was a weaponization of free speech. Exactly. Which is just so cynical. And exactly what they claim Russia is. They're doing the things that they say Russia does. That is what's so so outrageous about this. Well, there's so many things that's outrageous about this. But in terms of the silence, it's it's uh, it, it was predictable. It's unfortunate. I suspect that there may be elements out there who are among the so-called left that maybe they believe this. You know, black folks, we, we could be corrupted by, by money, you know. So it doesn't matter if you've been a a lifelong revolutionary like uh, O'Malley, you know, you dangle some bucks in front of us and we, we, we snatch it. I mean, it, it's part of the, 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 uh, the, the playbook uh, by these criminals to suggest that everybody is on the take. You know, they, they don't want to acknowledge that some of us operate from a different value system. You can't buy some of us. Okay. We have a target, uh, we are we are uh, motivated by uh, an alternative value system that says that we can be more than what we are today, and you can keep your money because you know we're talking about uh, a, a, a struggle for justice. So, you know, we, we say, you know, it's us today, but you know, it's you tomorrow if you if you if you persist in any kind of oppositional politics, because the ruling element in the U.S. They're serious. They're serious about attempting to maintain their hegemony uh, and their global hegemony. And the notion of uh, some of the values of the, of, of the liberal framework, liberal philosophy, liberalism, uh, they have completely uh, abandoned that. They have jettisoned that. And basically, they are engaged in lawlessness. The U.S. is now a rogue state. Uh, what we have domestically in the U.S. is a systematic um, uh, repression from a national security state that seems to be completely unbound by any kind of, of standards beyond beyond its own. We see that with the cop city uh, uh, transforming uh, protesters into domestic uh, terrorists. Um, is and, and it's, 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 it's outrageous, and it's outrageous that we don't see more opposition. Yeah, I mean. You mentioned liberals abandoning liberalism, and I know that's something that you've touched on before. And I'm always struck by it when it comes to the case of Julian Assange, where you have people who, again, this is not a radical left position to believe in a free press, to believe in free speech. And people are just so triggered. They think of Assange and they think of Hillary Clinton, even though his charges have nothing to do with 2016. But you have people who just shut down all their reasoning and become these like automatons and think Julian Assange, Trump, Hillary Clinton, lock them up forever. I don't care. This is a reflection of the of the moral bankruptcy of liberalism that because um, the, the, the Julian Assange situation developed under a Democrat Party administration um, and these people identify with not only the party, but with the state then basically they have, in essence, just abandoned any pretense to any kind of uh, liberal moral standing. They, they, it's incredible and, and, and dangerous um, and irrational. You know, you know, liberals always talked about the uh, ir- irrational forces on the so-called far right. But these last few years, uh, can you point to a, a period where people have been as irrational? The notion that uh, we need uh, 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 private entities to, to determine for us uh, the range of acceptable uh, ideals and thoughts that should be disseminated to the, to the U.S. population uh, to, to smear anyone that does not agree with U.S. policies as Russian agents to uh, suggest that any debate, any conversation around the, the criminal activity of the Israeli state uh, means that one is anti-Semitic. And people accept that that BS, that hustle. I mean, people have gone absolutely mad. And so on one level, it's understandable they will uh, abandon or not defend uh, the African People's Socialist Party. That they will come after people like me. You know, I'm a a, a Putin uh, poodle and a a sadist. And I mean, you know, because we take resolute positions against U.S. imperialism, knee-jerk imperialism. You know, but it, but it is. We haven't changed. 
the, the so-called left is the one that's changed. They have become social imperialists. What do you mean by that? They're basically, they have aligned themselves with the interests of the, of, the, of the U.S. ruling class, the U.S. bourgeoisie. They support U.S. imperialist policies. They believe, even if they don't understand it or don't a- acknowledge it, they believe in a benevolent empire. I mean, the very notion that a, a state and a project would find itself in the crosshairs of, of, of U.S. Uh, policy, U.S. subversive policy, should generate opposition from left forces. But instead, the president of Peru is in prison. And where is the left in the U.S.? Uh, where is the left uh, uh, protesting against the fact that not only did the Biden administration not condemn that, but they just they are sending 750 uh, U.S. troops to stabilize the regime. And we have to continually, continually fight off this, this year-long process that the U.S. has been involved in in trying to uh, uh, identify a force that will lead an armed intervention into Haiti. You know, and the way they frame that, that whole situation in Haiti is these wild black folks who just need some intervention and, some, and to be disciplined, you know? That, that, where, 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 where is the left? Where are the liberals on these kinds of notions? Where's self-determination there for the Haitian people? So this is the kind of madness that has now become almost normalized in the U.S. And you see the, 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 the article that came out in the New York Times yesterday where, you know, they talk about, the, the, you know, the, the problematic issue of so many Ukrainian soldiers having these Nazi uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, tags and, and stuff on their uniforms, and it was it was be it was playing into Russian propaganda. Well, maybe maybe these are real Nazis, you know, and maybe it's not uh, an exaggeration that you have uh, elements in Ukraine uh, that for years, even in the U.S. press, were identified as problematic because of their ultra nationalism, because of their Nazi sympathies. That maybe you know it's not just propaganda. We say that there are elements in that regime that, that cannot be supported because they are illegitimate. And that when the Ukrainians attack their own citizens uh, in, in eastern Ukraine, after they engineered the coup in 2014, that this U, the, the um, U.S. people should have been on the side of the eastern Ukrainians if they would have known about it and understood it. But instead, the, the U.S. Uh, ruling class, who has an interest and undermining uh, the Russians and undermining Ukraine because Ukraine is basically finished. There's no, there's no Ukrainian state any longer. Uh, it, it's a, it's an army now that's being decimated. But the between uh, the, the 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 poles who are now making moves <laughs> in Western Ukraine and the fact that Ukraine uh, cannot pay its debts back to the uh, to the U.S. and the Russians have now carved out a third of the country. It, you it, anything that may exist. They may be called a Ukrainian state would be a rump state. This is a consequence of U.S. policy, not the Russians. Is this falls on on the U.S. And here's that article you were talking about, by the way. Nazi symbols on Ukraine's front lines highlight thorny issues of history. Troops' use of patches bearing Nazi emblems risks fueling Russian propaganda and spreading imagery that the West has spent a half century trying to eliminate. That's an interesting way to frame actual Nazi images as furthering Russian propaganda as opposed to being reality. Not that all Ukrainians are Nazis, but there are there are Nazis there. Exactly. In the U.S. press from 2014 forward until the conflict, there were numerous stories about these problematic uh, elements in, in Ukraine. Right. But then it got to a point, if you reminded the population and reminded the press of those facts, that you became a Russian propagandist. Right. It's, it's absolutely, it's, it's insane. Yeah, it's, and all these places they used to call, I mean, we, we, I like to say that they obviously, these Azov Battalion members must have read um, White Fragility. They must have taken some anti-racist courses and received some sensitivity training because they're no longer called neo-Nazis. They're called like nationalists by the same media that called them neo-Nazis. Now they're, they've been uh, rehabilitated. The same playbook that happened in Syria, where basically you you transform the jihadists into into Syrian nationalists, moderate rebels, Mo- moderate rebels. Yes. Yeah, that was interesting. I love the idea that what is the exact quote that they risk fueling Russian propaganda? It's like, are they are they 
trying to, it's almost like they're speaking directly to Ukrainians wearing Nazi emblems and being like, don't do that. Guys, stop. You're embarrassing us. Exactly. Exactly. What else is the Black Alliance for Peace working on, by the way? Because you guys do such great work. Well, I mean, one, one major campaign that we just launched and we hope that we can generate some support for and is related to these issues of militarism. On April the 4th, the sixth anniversary of the launch of the Black Alliance for Peace, of the, the date that Dr. King was murdered, uh, we launched a, a campaign uh, in support of the CELEC call, the Community of Latin America and Caribbean States. Their call in 2014 to make the Americas region a zone of peace. Uh, so we, we launched uh, a campaign to make that a reality, but from the bottom up. Uh, CELAC, of course, is a collection of states. Uh, and so the missing element, we, we believe, was the lack of a, a popular thrust uh, on that. So we have, um, we, we put together a, a campaign where we have elements from across the, uh, the region that are part of this. And we launched this campaign on April the 4th. We're still developing this campaign as a campaign in development. But the, the target is basically to, uh, to eliminate uh, uh, all of these uh, external forces that are, are attempting to uh, continue uh, their, their dominance, primarily the U.S., uh, in our region uh, by using military means and subversion. So we, we're calling to shut down uh, the uh, U.S. South, South, Southern Command. As everybody knows, the U.S. has, uh, in its arrogance, uh, divided the entire world into military commands. Uh, and so in, the, in our region, in the Americas, and we're part of the America, we have to, Americas, we have to remind people of that. Uh, uh, Southcom is the military command. Uh, there's 76 or so bases on, uh, in, in, Latin, in South America and in, in, uh, in Central America, and we want to shut down those bases. This is in, um, this is in, in conjunction with our campaign against AFRICOM, uh, to shut down AFRICOM. So we want to shut down those bases. We want to uh, stop the uh, training of, military, of, of uh, police forces uh, by, by the U.S. Uh, we want to uh, eliminate the subversion, the interference into in the internal affairs of various nations in, in, in our region by the U.S. We want to create the conditions where people can live and thrive in peace, to, to allow people to to, to experiment, to build their own projects, to be free of the, of the criminal interventions that we see that are undermining the ability to exercise self-determination and sovereignty uh, and, to, and to create the conditions where the people can have all of the, of the things that we all need to have to have human dignity, healthcare, housing, education. These are the things that people are striving for. Uh, to be free of of pollution, uh, but it's di it's difficult to do that when you have the commander of Southcom, Lord uh, General Lord Richardson, talk about the importance of the U.S. being in 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 the region militarily, because thirty two percent of all the fresh water on the planet exists in our region, because you have the lithium uh, triangle uh, that has more than a third of all of the lithium. Is in is in our region that uh, a third of the of the of the food uh, products or commodities for 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 China comes from our region. And when you say our region, you mean the Americas. Yeah, the Americas. And we say that we part of the campaign we're developing is we want to develop an American-wide consciousness. Don't fall for the okie doke. You are in North America, but you're part of the Americas. Don't identify with these gangsters that are running this nation. Identify with the struggling peoples of our region. So we say we want the U.S. out of the Americas. Speaking of the Americas, you are in Colombia. What brought you there? And what can you tell us about the political situation there? Well, what brought me here was a long story, but... Uh, um, the, uh, and I've been coming to Colombia for, for more than 30 years, and I'm, I'm involved in the struggles in this country and, and throughout the, uh, the, the black struggle throughout the, the Americas with all of the anti-colonial struggles. 
Um, uh, uh, Colombia is a very um, interesting place. Of course, we know up until the um, the ascendancy, the power of of uh, uh, Petro and Francia Marquez, um, that uh, Colombia was a, a major uh, ally of the U.S. We know that the um, from historical experiences uh, that the Colombians have played uh, a, a a subversive role in helping to enforce uh, U.S. policies in the region, including the fact that we know that a bunch of Colombians, 22 or so, were involved in some way in the assassination of the Haitian uh, president. Um, and so I, we know that Colombia is a, a special NATO NATO partner. Um, but Colombia is also the, the site of, of intense political struggle. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's, it's had the longest guerrilla conflict on the planet that was negotiated. Um, which ended up with the the Cubans being put on the uh, target on the back on the list of of state sponsors of terrorism. Why? Because they hosted the peace negotiation between the Colombian government and FARC. So, but with this new administration, they are, are attempting to ex, to expand the peace process. They are in discussions with various groups, including the ELN, another one of the long term guerrilla groups uh, in this country and trying to create the conditions for what uh, Petro refers to as total peace. But it's a very difficult uh, situation. The, uh, Columbia, the, the poverty level is, is pretty high. Uh, and even though they have nominal influence in Congress, um, the nature of the Colombian state is such where, you know, the military apparatus, the police forces are still very, very powerful. And just a few weeks ago, uh, they had a gigantic rally of more than 3,000 ex-military personnel, including retired generals and others, uh, who basically said, in essence, we are in opposition to this current government. So it's a very delicate situation here. But one is also hopeful. Shifting gears a little bit, you, of course, ran for vice president uh, with the Green Party in 2016. I want to know your thoughts on electoralism in general, but also we have some recent news, which is that Cornell West has announced he'll be running for president with the People's Party. What are your thoughts on this news? You know, I believe in expanding democracy, uh, even though we have a, um, a, a bourgeois democracy in the U.S. Uh, the only way that one can uh, help to develop the kind of, of pro-democratic movement that we need is to take advantage of what already exists. So, um, you know, Cornell uh, attempting to develop this this party and, and running, um, you know, I, I can't be opposed to that because I know the kinds of issues that, that he will, in fact, raise. He will raise the issues of peace. Um, he will raise the issues related to uh, the, the continued grinding poverty we have uh, in this country. And so, you know, his voice and the issues he will raise, I think, can be a positive contribution to the national discourse that we have to have. Some people criticize him for not running as a Democrat. And that that seems to be they don't they don't understand Cornell's politics in terms of where he believes the country is and and the complete capture of the Democratic Party uh, by the the neoliberal right uh, uh, finance capital. Uh, and so the only way, and we, and we all see, we've been talking about uh, the, 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 the constrained spaces we have now for democratic discourse. So the only way you deal with that is to try to open it up uh, so that we can op- try to expand it again a little bit and try to maintain it for as long as we can. Because many of us believe, I believe, that uh, the, the cutting edge of fascism in the U.S. is not just the, 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 the Trumpians. And, and those elements, as dangerous as they are, to me, the cutting edge of a particular kind of U.S. fascism is, in fact, the, the, the elements that control the Democratic Party, the neoliberal elements that control the Democrat Party. They are the ones that are developing a particular kind of, of fascism that people don't even seem to be able to recognize. So I think having Cornell uh, as part of that discourse, part of that conversation, I think, will be helpful. And what do you mean about this particular kind of American fascism that the neoliberal Democratic Party is on the edge of? Can you elaborate on that? 
That is a fascism framed as a, a, a defense of democracy. That it is a, a totalitarianism that seems to be unrecognizable by most of the people who support the Democrat Party. They so focus focus on the behaviorism, uh, the 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 the, the uh, show being put on by Trump and the right over there, DeSantis and others, and that, and that understanding the the threat that we face when you have the legitimation of a, a political position that says that we have to have Big Brother to determine who, how we think and what information we have, that you cannot deviate from the, the party line, the state line on Ukraine, uh, that uh, it's all right for, uh, for, for the, the financial sector to make billions of dollars, you know, um, uh, and, 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 but they, you can't touch, you know, a Pentagon spending. And there's no opposition that it's all right for uh, Democrats who control these various cities to charge people with with domestic terrorism. You know, this is the kind of, of fascist right in front of our faces that's being pushed by uh, these neoliberal uh, Democrats. And so, you know, we are trying to call attention to that. We're not saying that the Trumpian folks are not dangerous. They are. But, you know, while you are watching them, you know, you, you got these folks behind the curtain who are really. You know, they're the ones that control the state. They are the, they, these neoliberals are the ones that control the state. You remember at the height of the Trumpian um, uh, experience and, and people were talking about, you know, the deep state and then the, the liberals, oh, that's, you know, the deep state, it doesn't exist. But then you had the identification of the opposition in the Trump administration and they referred to them not as the deep state, but as the steady state. And the hell is that? If that's not the deep state, okay? So we is right on front of us, but people, people are not thinking. So, you know, the kind of fascism that we've been exposed to as African people in the U.S., the fascism uh, that was has been part of the colonial project, is the, the fascism that's now being blown back on Europe in the form of this conflict in Eastern, uh, Eastern Europe, which is something that even I didn't believe was going to happen. This is what's happening across across the Western world. Even Obama didn't want this to happen. That's what, you know, kind of I find so shocking. Obama himself, I mean, Aaron Mate, the co-host of Useful Idiots with me, talks about this a lot, which is that Obama himself was asked about arming Ukraine, and he said it wasn't a good idea to do it. And all these people who consider him to be this brilliant constitutional law professor, very sober, rational thinker, I bring this up with Assange too. Like he he realized that he couldn't go after Assange too too hard because of the New York Times problem, which is that if if Assange broke the law by publishing what he published, then so did the New York Times. But exactly. Similarly, I just I'm so incredulous, although maybe that's naive, but I'm incredulous that the same people who love Barack Obama don't realize that he also thought it'd be a bad idea. He, like the two of us here, he thought it'd be a bad idea to fund Ukraine. You know, there there was a time you don't you didn't have to be a radical to just think that that would be a bad idea. What well, which is true, Katie. But at the same time, um, they he, they did pursue policies that, that laid the foundation for the current conflict. Yes, to- totally. I'm, I mean, I'm not even giving him credit on, for that. It's just interesting to me that just for liberals who who like Obama so much, you'd think that maybe they they'd remember that part, but it, it wasn't. The media didn't pick it up because they, the media didn't like that. No, no, and and is is interesting too that that there was a there was a, a sensitivity to the the track that they were on in terms of of arming, rearming Ukraine, uh, developing the military, uh, uh, looking at the possibility of of heavy weapons being introduced into the theater. There was a concern because they knew they were they were they were approaching that red line, uh, but they continued to to go ahead. They were in 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 the went right into the Trump administration while people were talking about Trump being a Putin poodle or whatever. Right. His, he made decisions to allow for even more heavier weapons to go to, go to, uh, to Ukraine. So everybody is implicated in this, this disaster of Ukraine. Yeah. And what do you see the role of electoralism as? So quickly, are you endorsing? Does Cornell West have your vote? Are you making an official endorsement? 
I'm not going to endorse anybody yet. I mean, it, it's, um, you know, uh, I want to see a vigorous sort of debate. I think the electoral process is one in which radicals uh, can contest if you have no illusions about its limitations, because what we are trying to do is get access to the public. So, uh, and to raise the, uh, the, the level of visibility on certain issues, to raise and transform consciousness, leading to a more effective organization and opposition. So that's why, and so I have no illusions beyond, no, I, no, I have no faith beyond that in this limited thing that they call democracy uh, in the United States of America. And what did you learn through your run in 2016 with the Green Party? That politics in the U.S. is even more corrupt than I thought, um, that the Democrat Party is a gangster uh, party, because uh, they are the ones that led the, the fight uh, against us. They then turned around and led the fight to undermine the Harry Hawkins campaign in 2020, including getting Hawkins thrown off the ballot in a few states, uh, that these people are not committed to, to democracy at all, that they are moral hypocrites. And that basically, if you're not prepared to get into this thing and fight and, and have to get down in the mud with some of these folks, then don't don't even play with it because these folks are, are, are mud fighters and they fight to win. Speaking of electoralism, what are your thoughts on the debt ceiling negotiations? What a fraud. What a what a pathetic and cynical game. From the very beginning, I was, we were trying to tell people they're playing, they're playing you. You know, that basically this is this is the value of the Democrats being in office. That you're going to have the Democrats to 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 provide cover for a, a ruling class agenda, basically not just freezing, but in, in essence, because of inflation, cuts in social spending, while you have this 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 obscene defense budget being beyond reproach, beyond being touched, is absolutely crazy. So it's a big hustle, and I think I'm hoping people are starting to wake up to. And any final thoughts that you want to share or anything else that you want to comment on or recommendations or shout outs you want to give? Well, I was rushing because I know that you have another segment, so I, I would make it very, very. Oh, no. Well, he's he's not here and we want, we want to have, uh, you have so much to say. We're going to definitely, if you will, we would love to have you back on, by the way, because you have so much wisdom. Definitely. So I, I don't I don't have to rush that much anymore then. So let me, <laughs> basically, we, this is a very, um, very delicate moment. And that people have to understand that, you know, when when they say that the economy is is in is in is in good shape, uh, that we have to look past that. This this situation with the debt ceiling and the kinds of compromises made by the Democrats, it continues to expose the fact that ordinary people, that the working class, we have no representation uh, in the electoral process. That's why a, a, a voice like a, a Cornell West can be important, uh, as long as you know, in the end, they don't try to sheepdog people back into the Democrats because we're afraid of the Donald Trumps of the world. You know, I have faith in the ability of, of the people to understand the world and to uh, develop policies and politics that would take us beyond the, the challenges uh, represented by both of these capitalist parties that will survive even another uh, Donald Trump uh, term, um, and that basically, if we don't survive, if we give in uh, to the madness, we're not going to be here. Another quick thing I want to say too: we're talking about the future in 2024. My concern is this, Katie. I don't think people understand how precarious the situation is right now with Ukraine, and the fact that we have never been this close to the possibility of a nuclear conflict. And it's so dangerous because you have these amateurs making policy in the U.S. These folks don't have a clue. They are, the Russians and the Chinese can't even really, they have no one to talk to. There's no, there's no adults running anything. The Biden isn't running anything. And this clown, uh, Jake Sullivan and uh, Blinken, they don't have a clue to how to, to, to run this thing. And they keep on escalating. Where did you stop? You're not going to win militarily in Ukraine. So what happens? You're going to create a situation where there's going to be uh, something happens where the Russians think they're under attack um, and they launch on warning. I mean, it's absolute and complete madness. We've got to stop this conflict, folks. You know, later for don't don't later for this notion of of a military uh, defeat of the Russians. It's not 
going to happen. There ain't no pro-Putin position, no pro-Russian position. It's objective reality. Stop the war. Thank you. That's a perfect message to end on. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And everyone should follow you on Twitter. Yes. Where, Which is just your name, right? At Ajamo Baraka. Yes. And we will see you soon. Please come back. Thank you for inviting me. Enjoyed it. Of course. Okay. Take it easy. Thanks, you too. That was great. And we have more show. And what a great segue because I just asked Ajamu about the debt ceiling. And we have a guest coming on who I can't wait to talk about this stuff with. You know him. He's been on the show before. He is the editor-in-chief and founder of The Lever. And he's also an Academy Award nominee for his work developing the story of Don't Look Up. So let's bring on to the show David Sirota. Hi, David. How are you? Hey there. Thanks for having me. Is it the lever or the lever, by the way? Well, it depends. If you're British, it's the lever. Okay. Got it. If you're American, it's the lever. Although I guess it's up to anybody who, yeah. uh, how they want to say it. Okay. So you're, you're flexible. That. We are flexible, especially because I, I'm in the um, I'm, I'm here in Denver, and uh, the most famous lever here is actually Fat Lever, who was the uh, NBA player uh, oh. on the Denver Nuggets, one of the great Denver Nuggets. Wow! Yeah. All right. And he, I think he went by Lever, Fat Lever, Lafayette okay. Lever. Oh, got it. Okay, that's. I was wondering why his name was Fat. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and you have a great piece at. That, that website, at The Lever, which I highly recommend as a website. It's great. And it's about Joe Biden's alleged victory. He's being praised, obviously, for this debt ceiling. So much winning. So much, so much winning. winning. Yeah, so much winning. Yeah. So much winning. So what is this, this alleged big win? How do you see this big win? Who are the winners and who are the losers? Well, I think that, you know, uh, there's been this deception going on where the story supposedly starts only a few weeks ago. Uh, when in fact I start the story um, back in November, uh, and and the story looks different depending on where you start the story. So the story that Joe Biden is telling, the story of supposed victory, is a story that begins only a few weeks ago. They have to raise the debt ceiling. If they don't raise the debt ceiling uh, at that point, there's going to be a default. Uh, and in this story, there's nothing Joe Biden can possibly do other than give in to Republican demands. And the best he can do, the big victory, is that he didn't do uh, every single thing that Kevin McCarthy wanted. He only did uh, some of those things. That's that's the story that starts a few weeks ago. Uh, and Democratic lawmakers, uh, rank and file Democratic lawmakers, are saying, you know, who voted for this, are saying, look, it was ultimately only a choice between uh, defaulting or giving into some of what Kevin McCarthy wanted and avoiding default. That's that's a great story uh, if it only starts a few weeks ago. Um, and I know that we live in a goldfish culture where everybody forgets their entire world every 15 minutes, uh, particularly liberals, uh, because to remember the world longer than 15 minutes is to learn some inconvenient truths. So. Let's rewind the tape back to um, right after the midterm elections. So right after the midterm elections, uh, the need to raise the debt ceiling was obviously no secret um, to anybody uh, whose job it is is to pay attention to such things. Uh, And right after the election, Bernie Sanders said, we need to raise the debt ceiling in the lame duck session when the Democrats still control the Congress. Uh, And Janet Yellen, of all people, uh, also said, yeah, that that we we should do that. Just clean debt ceiling. hike, don't attach anything to it, the end. And the Democrats, I'm sure you'll be surprised to learn, uh, didn't try to do that at all. Uh, In fact, in a moment where the quiet part was screamed out loud, Dick Durbin went to the press, the number two Senate uh, uh, Democrat, Senate Majority Whip, and said, we just don't have time to do it. We just don't feel like making the time to do this. And, And they could have done it, by the way, through reconciliation. Now, Folks who will acknowledge this, uh, which is not very many folks, um, folks who will acknowledge this will say, well, it wasn't clear that Manchin and Cinema would, would vote for this, which may be true, may not be true. Uh, it was never tested. It was never, never even voted on, never even brought up. And uh, there's a, a good point that the American Prospects David Dayan makes, which is that at that point, you're choosing, well, do we want to negotiate with Manchin or do we want to negotiate with Kevin McCarthy, right? Because like you're going to have to raise the debt ceiling or default. So would you rather have a a, a give and take with 
with somebody who's officially in your party or the incoming Republican House Speaker. And the Democrats chose the latter. Uh, and they chose the latter. Uh, and then when McCarthy obviously made his demands, uh, the some progressives said, just invoke the 14th Amendment, take it to court and end this nonsense. Uh, and the Biden White House quickly dumped cold water on that. Didn't even want to try that. Uh, and so what you're left with is a story that uh, is that the outcome is not some unfortunate, we had to do it kind of story. Now with the Democrats celebrating, I actually think that they're, uh, they're being honest, that, that this is where they wanted to be. So then the question is, all right, well, where are we? Well, okay, we averted a, 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 def a default for now for two years. We've restarted student debt payments in the middle of an affordability crisis. We've made it harder for very poor people to get uh, food stamps. Uh, in the middle of a climate crisis, um, uh, this week, the federal government says more CO2 in the atmosphere uh, than in recorded history. Uh, you're passing a, uh, you're expediting a fossil fuel pipeline that will uh, be uh, responsible for emitting the equivalent of 20 or 25 coal plants worth of greenhouse gas emissions, according to various estimates. You've expedited that. Not only have you expedited it, you've actually put in language trying to prevent any court challenge to it. And you've increased the military budget to record levels while uh, putting in place uh, cuts to the uh, uh, non-defense, what's known as the non-defense discretionary budget, aka social programs. So this happens, and now the DNC is airing ads asking us to thank Joe Biden for this, and Biden is giving an Oval Office speech saying this is a big win. So again, if you put all of this together, had a chance to do something, refused to, do, to, to even try to do something, uh, could have used the 14th Amendment, refused to do that, signed up to a deal that did all of what I just mentioned, then you're celebrating it as a big win. What you're saying is, is that this is exactly what the Democratic Party wanted. I mean, that that's that's I mean, what other takeaway is there? And so I think what's I guess good about this, and there's not much good because it's going to be a lot of human suffering and a lot of human pain. What's good about this is that this is actually, if you're willing to look at those facts, this is actually a moment of honesty. This is a moment of clarity. This is what the Democratic Party, or at least the Democratic leadership and rank and file sort of middle of the Democratic Party, this is what it wants. This is its agenda. This is what its priorities are. And you overlay that, of course, with Joe Biden's own history giving speeches on the floor of the Senate saying that he really, really wants to work with Republicans to cut government spending. This is what this party is. And, and look, if liberals and rank and file democratic voters are happy with that you're you're getting exactly what what your party wants if you're not happy with that then something's got to change thanks again for listening to the katie helper show to hear the rest of that discussion please join the patreon at patreon.com slash the katie helper show again that's patreon.com slash the katie helper show if you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time. See you next time.